Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Box Tablet. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. Today, recovering from a brain injury, one tablespoon at a time. Jessica Fector was just 28 years old when a blood vessel in her brain burst while she was running on a treadmill. She was newly married, and she was studying for a Ph.D. in Jewish literature. Her husband and she had just started thinking about having a baby, and now, suddenly, she was facing a long and difficult recovery, one that got even harder after complications from surgery. Before Jessica was even out of the hospital, though, she started making lists. Not to-do lists, but grocery lists. She always loved cooking, and suddenly the act of mixing ingredients to produce something delectable for herself and for the people around her felt more pressing than ever. Jessica Factor describes what happened in a new book that is two parts memoir and one part cookbook. The book is called Stir, and Jessica joins us today to talk about it. Jessica Factor, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you. So before we get into the story of your illness and your recovery, I want to ask you about food. Obviously, there is a lot about food in this book. You include really delicious-sounding recipes at the end of each chapter. And you talk about identifying certain foods with certain locations and certain memories. You did, in fact, bring with you a certain food today. I want you to tell us what it is and why it is significant. So what we have uh, on the plates in front of us, this is Marcella's Butter Almond Cake. And the way I discovered it was through my stepmom, Amy, and she discovered it through a friend who discovered it in the Columbus Dispatch uh, back in the late 90s. And um, I was uh, I was in New York for college and I came home uh, one winter break and I walked in the door uh, with my bags and I smelled something delicious. And I looked over uh, and on the counter there was this this cake, this very simple um buttery almond cake in a fluted tart pan cooling with sliced almonds and and sugar on top and there was something about the aroma that reminded me of something and more than reminded me really kind of there was like a little poke inside of me that this this aroma means something and I couldn't quite place it and uh later that night we sliced into it and I took a bite and it was really a it was a clown car of a cake for me. All of these memories just started tumbling out, you know, Proustian Madeline style <laughs> of um, my my childhood in New York City and um, my parents when they were married and my, this great aunt of mine. And uh, I realized it was because the flavor, that almond flavor, was reminiscent of the. It's actually apricot kernel, but it's a similar flavor um, in amaretti. Um, th- those ones in the in the red tins mm-hmm. that you can find all over the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my, my stepmom, she, her, her name is Amy, and um, she is the person who really taught me how to think about food and baking and cooking in the way that I, that, that I wanted to do that. You know, long before Alice Waters, uh, before I knew who Alice Waters was, I had Amy really showing me by example that the best food is food that tastes like itself. The best food is food that is simple. You don't need to follow a a complicated recipe. you can, you know, grill some chicken and shake up a, a simple marinade and put it on some fresh lettuce, and that is delicious. Um, and this cake um, really epitomized that. Um, once I once I found out how to make it and discovered that, oh, it it takes what ten fifteen minutes to get everything into the pan. You bake it up, and out it comes. Um, and it's it and it's my favorite cake. It does smell amazing, and I need to have a bite. 
Mm. It's delicious. <laughs> I'm glad you like it. You write so vividly about these pleasurable experiences and how they connect you to people and places. You also, in STIR, write so incredibly vividly about the day that your brain burst, the day that this aneurysm befell you, uh, and the surreal and really truly terrifying weeks that followed. In fact, as I was reading it, I felt myself cringe at reading. It was so horrifying uh, because it was so uh, immediate, the way you wrote about it. Um, I want listeners to have a sense of that, so I want to ask you to read a little bit, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. The prologue? Yeah. Yeah, the prologue. Uh-huh. All right. I am on the floor. My back is flat against the ground, and so are the soles of my feet, and my knees are up and swaying. Someone is holding my head at the temples. Jessica, it's Alana. She says it the Canadian way, with a flat first A, lavish, lamb, Atlantic. My knees are swaying. I turn my head and vomit into her lap. The hotel gym guy comes with orange Gatorade. He is tall and waxy with a bird face and dark hair that's more thin than thinning. He wants to know if I've had any breakfast. A banana, I tell him, and he nods as though he's suspected as much. He bends at the waist and wags the bottle over my face for me to take it. I vomit again. Alana doesn't flinch. I'm at a graduate student conference in Stowe, Vermont, a town wedged deep in the valley between the Green Mountains and the Worcester Range. I am 28 years old. Alana is a colleague. I've seen her at these conferences over the last couple of years, and we've shared meals, but that's all. I'm grateful for the pad of her thigh. I see my friend, Orr. We'd planned to run together along the country roads that morning, but a crack of thunder had sent us to the gym instead. He stands over me now in a tank top with a bandana tied low across his forehead. He looks like a pirate and says he's going to call. The gym guy insists it's not necessary, but Orr calls. An ambulance is coming. Is it unusual for a person with uh, an aneurysm, as you had, to remember what happened so clearly? I mean, I was shocked that you were able to recount every detail. Um, it's a, that's a great question. I don't know specifically about about you know people who have aneurysms what they remember, but I also was under the impression that, as I write in Stir, that trauma is supposed to serve as this merciful eraser that wipes away every scrap um, of the 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 fear and the pain, at least at the in the early stages. But I really do remember everything, and I surprised myself as I wrote um, the act of writing how. I, I discovered that I remembered even more and more than I than I even realized. In the days after you suffered this aneurysm, how long did it take for you to understand what was happening uh, medically speaking? Um, well, I think it actually took a long time for the severity of the situation to sink in, not because I was compromised in terms of my cognitive abilities, but because... I think it's just a really hard thing to get your head around, um, right? The idea that you might be dying, uh, or that you might you might be about to die, um, and 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 I, and I write about some of this uh, in Stir that when I was first in the uh, the emergency department, 
And they hadn't found the aneurysm yet. They We knew that there was blood in my brain, so so there was a hemorrhage. Um, and this young, handsome South African doctor came over to me um, and asked me to sign my name uh, for some release forms, which I did. And I asked him, I said, could I die? And he looked right at me, and I'm so grateful to him and to all these, these doctors at Fletcher Allen Hospital in, in Burlington, Vermont, who just – they – you know, they were just so human and humane and they didn't mince words. And he just looked right at me very bravely and said, yes. And it was, especially looking back, um, it surprises me to to remember that that didn't scare me, although it it should have. Instead, I actually had this moment of relief when he said it, because in my in my way of thinking, and you know, I guess your brain just kind of adjusts to make sense of the world in whatever reality you're in. My thinking at the time was something like, "Okay," it, it, the answer wasn't yes. The answer was yes, but now you're here. You know, even though that's not what he said, um, I heard it as. Yes, you might have died from this terrible thing, but now you're here and now you're safe. We know what it is. We know the worst case possible scenario, um, you know, that kind of magical thinking mm-hmm. that we do sometimes where we think of the worst case thing, thinking that now that is – we, we can ward it off. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what that moment was for me. Um, so really throughout the first weeks of this um, – in some ways, naively so, I think I was I was under the impression, okay, all right, um, I am sick, but I have these wonderful people on the case, and it's going to be okay. The trajectory, though, of your recovery wasn't quite as simple as just having this surgery and then, you know, you're recovered and all better. You actually had infection, and there were many complications that resulted. Tell us a little bit about the long road of recovery. Okay. So there was a surgery to, to clip the, the aneurysm which was successful. Um, And I woke up from that surgery and apparently, you know, uh, the the surgeon, Dr. Tranmer, had gone out to see my family and said it went wonderfully and they're all, you know, high-fiving. I woke up from the surgery and I couldn't see out of my left eye. And I remember thinking, I must be bandaged up. And I reached for my eye and I could feel my eyelashes blinking. And I thought, okay, no, I'm I'm blind in this eye. And it took a while to get someone's attention because, you know, people are loopy when they're coming out of however long it was, maybe eight hours, 10 hours, I don't know, uh, a long surgery. Um, and I had this I had this wonderful, wonderful nurse, Patty Crease, and she she just she got it and she believed me. And um very soon after I was back on the operating table, they discovered that um that my optic nerve, my left optic nerve was compressed during that surgery. And the optic nerve is not something that that really recovers, um, or it can, but not uh, not in a robust way. Uh, I, I am I am blind in that eye. It's mostly black. I have a little sliver um, where I see shapes and colors. Mm-hmm. Um, but even after that point, um, I uh, my, my my surgeon um, who again, in an amazing gesture of just humanity and compassion, waited until visiting hours were over and came and sat down next to my bed and just said, I am so sorry about about your eye. Um, and uh, I said at that point, well, will I be able to write my dissertation? <laughs> and he said, 
oh, oh, yes. And um, <laughs> he had this wonderful Canadian accent. And he um, explained to me what turned out to be absolutely right, which is that even with one eye, your brain remaps such that one day I would not uh, or I would barely notice a deficit. And that is the case today. Wow. Um, depth perception is a uh, binocular phenomenon uh, in close range. And so for things like driving, it was never a problem. But um, at the beginning, I would pour a cup of tea uh, at my hospital bed, you know, and I would try to put the cup down and it would just go crashing Mm -hmm. to the floor. I'd miss the table completely. Um, And over time, I still have trouble, like if I want to decide on an ice cream flavor and I ask for a sample, which I don't even really do anymore. (laughs) You know, they they try to give me those little baby spoons and I'm grabbing at the spoon, grabbing at the air, you know, as I try to grab the spoon. Um, But it is true that um, while I do have a blind spot that if you stand in it, I'm blind, my sense of it is really that I have hardly any deficit at all from that. Um, And... I went to rehab then to not, again, I was so fortunate, no cognitive or neurological deficits. Um, but because of having just been in bed for so many weeks, um, I was very weak. And because of the eye too, just, I had to get a sense of my body in space again. And so I was in rehab up there. And then I went home thinking that I was told, okay, this would be a six to eight month recovery from the, the, the brain injury. Um, and about a week later, I spiked a fever and at first we thought, oh, maybe it's – we were told it's probably the flu. It's so far out from surgery. Um, But then my head began to swell. My face began to swell and I ended up – I was home now in Boston um, and I ended up going into the hospital there and uh, after a lot of – kind of back and forth. It's an infection. No, it's a cerebral spinal fluid leak. No, it's this. No, it's that. Uh, They decided to go in and really find out what it was. And it was a pseudomonas infection, um, which is a very nasty infection um, in the tissues surrounding my brain and in that bone flap. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the bone flap was so diseased that they actually had to throw it away. And I had a big kind of fist-sized dent um, in my skull. If you imagine uh, a soccer ball or basketball when it gets a little deflated and you Mm -hmm. could punch it and it holds its shape, that is what I looked like. And it was when I came out of that surgery that um, I knew right away that my sense of smell was missing. And oddly, you know, you'd think brain aneurysm, infection, missing a piece of your skull, losing the vision. These are, are on the hierarchy of horrible things that, you know, worse than losing my sense of smell. But for some reason, that was the the moment that I I had this sinking feeling of maybe everything's not going to be okay. Um, my sense of smell did, by the way, unlike my vision, which did not return my sense of smell, did recover um, almost fully or perhaps fully, it's hard to say, in mm-hmm. one nostril. And um, the other one uh not so much but i don't my my husband always says you still you're you smell better than uh <laughs> better than you know most people and i do have a very acute sense of smell even with whatever uh damage uh remains when i first heard a description of this book i have to confess i was a little worried would it be a little corny would it be like chicken soup, you know chicken soup for the soul That's or sort what of i was feel? worried about in writing it seriously <laughs> you were yeah like could i pull this off for sure um but the connections that you'd make between sharing food and your recovery are really compelling and completely convincing. Uh, I wonder what did it mean for you as you did undergo your recovery to be able to prepare food for someone else or to be able to accept other people's preparations for you? 
there are many answers to this question, so I'm going to just pick one or two. Okay, and then, <laughs> because I mean that that really is what that is the book, right? Um, very early on um, in my in my recovery, when people, I mean, this is this is how it goes when people are sick. People when people you love are sick, you want to do something, and it's really hard to know what to do because often the answer is you really can't do anything, um, which is which is horrible. Um, and so very early on, my, my friends, they, they, they cooked because that was something they could do. And, um, I think that we all have a very clear understanding of what it means to be a good host, um, to be a gracious host. Even that, that expression rolls off the tongue to be a gracious host. And I think it's a lot trickier understanding what it is to be a good guest, to be a gracious guest. And this was a very immersive experience in terms of learning how to be a good guest. Um, because I was a guest in many ways, not only uh, if I would go to someone else's home, which I, I couldn't do for a while, um, but learning what it felt like to be a guest in my own home, um, to have people bring this beautifully prepared food over and to to set it up, to have the table. I mean, I, I love setting the table and I wasn't able to, to do that. And in fact, I was the one who was operating as a guest in my own home and learning that, you know what? I, I, I had always thought that being a guest, a good guest meant you offer your assistance, you, 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 then when it is refused, you offer it again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and in fact, it's really, it's really quite the opposite, you know, to, to allow your host to, to do for you, um, to, to, to have a seat instead and drink that first glass of wine and to, to catch up uh, with your with with the other people at the table, that is really what the host wants most of all. And so I think I learned how to be a gracious guest. Um, I also learned about um, I, I learned I start I began to learn, and writing this book was really the continuation of that learning um, about why food preparing food um, felt so important to me. And I think some of it has to do with um, when you're as sick as I was. You don't get to be generous. You, you again. It, it's related to that idea of being a guest. And um, I, I write and stir that that baking is really the very um, incarnation of generosity. Because if you have enough flour and sugar and eggs to bake, you by definition have more than you need for just you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, unlike cooking for yourself, where you can you can cook for one very easily, it's hard to bake for one um, because no matter you know, how, how big your sweet tooth is, you cannot eat all of those cookies yourself or that entire cake yourself. And so you bake to share. Um, and so getting back into being able to do that, being able to, to bake, um, and to cook for my, for my friends and for my family, that was a big marker for me of, of, oh, I'm getting better. Um, I can be generous again. In the book, you mentioned that you and your husband keep kosher. You talk about preparing Shabbat dinners at your house or going to the home of friends for Shabbat dinner. Do you see a connection between your Jewish observance and your connection to food? It's funny because there. Okay, I'm gonna. You have to bear with me for a second because okay, I'm. Cool. Yeah, this is this is this <laughs> is a question that I want very badly to be able to answer, and the reason why it's hard for me is because I am still trying to figure this one out. Um, so on the one hand, there is the answer that I think um, is is pretty intuitive and you know uh, you know if superficial but but true, uh, which is that um, 
you know, food and memory, these things are tied together. And so the foods that I grew up eating and the foods that I made, so challah, um, which I had been baking every week for, for years uh, when I when I got sick, um, my mother-in-law's uh, cholent, um, my mother's chicken soup, all of these recipes, the challah, the cholent, the chicken soup, these are all in stir. Um, so certainly there is this this nostalgia element, right? This uh, this this piece where, um, it in the same way that I think anyone who grows up in any kind of culinary tradition, those foods, uh, th- those foods and their identification with that culture or religion, those things are intertwined. Mm-hmm. Um, but that answer was never satisfying to me. And when I think about um, what might be a satisfying answer to me or, or, or the beginning of a satisfying answer about what is the relationship between my Jewish identity and my draw to the kitchen, I believe that thinking about identity is a very Jewish thing to do. Um, looking back at who we are in the the most macro kind of way and also in this uh, more micro kind of personal reflection kind of way um, this is this is a Jewish practice storytelling this is a Jewish practice or at least it's my Jewish practice and some of this by the way the reason why I, I struggle here a little bit with this answer is because my own Jewish observance has um, has been in flux. I would say people, you know, you might say, oh, since the the life-threatening, the near-death experience. And yes, but really it's since the plunge into food and writing. Um, and I think it's because a lot of what I, what I get out of Jewish observance and Jewish practice and Judaism is this sense of history, this sense of being part of a story and being the maker and creator of story. Um, And I get the same thing out of food and out of cooking and out of writing about food and cooking. So for me, it's those things that are that are linked and I think hold the same pride of place as um, the the chicken soup, the chillant, the challah um, that that are about that kind of visceral um, taste memory and taste experience. You're you're a mom now. You mentioned in the book and the acknowledgments, you've got two children, two daughters. What do you think you will pass on to them from this whole experience? Sorry. Well, when a new book arrives at our home, um, either in the mail or if I... We, we go to a bookstore and we take a book down from the shelf. My older daughter now, who is three and three quarters, her name is Mia, she will always say to me, who made this? And I love that she has this strong sense of um, the fact that books are made, that they're created, that they're made by people. And I know that the question that you're asking and the and, uh, main reason that I got choked up is because you're not asking about the experience of writing the book. You're asking about the experience of almost dying. And um, but the thing is that to me, the 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 two are intertwined. And this idea that you know some people in their with their 
love and their best of intentions would say to me when I was sick, everything happens for a reason. And I do not believe that. I believe that things happen and then other things happen and what we make of what happens becomes the reason. And I feel very proud of this book that I've written of Stir. I feel very proud of um, having taken having taken this terrible thing that happened and having made something, having made art out of it. And I, I hope, I, I think that there will come a day when my daughters will, will understand that, the fullness of that, and um, will hopefully know that with the love and support of their family and friends and with their own strength and courage that they can do anything. Jessica Fector, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Jessica Fector is the author of Stir, My Broken Brain and the Meals That Brought Me Home. The book is just out from Avery. It's really terrific. You should get yourself a copy. And if you want to see the recipe for the almond cake, which Jessica brought us to sample, it is truly delicious. We have the recipe on our website, tabletmag.com. Meantime, if you have a recipe that you like to make when someone you know and love is sick or that you make for yourself when you're feeling out of sorts, share it with us. Send it to us at podcast at tabletmag.com. If there's a picture of what you're making, we would love that too. If you have a blog or a Twitter address you want to include, send it all to us at podcast at tabletmag.com. We will choose some favorites to post on our Facebook page. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Avery. As ever, we thank you for joining us. We hope you'll join us again next time. And we do encourage you, if you haven't already, to subscribe to Vox Tablet on iTunes or any other podcast browser. Do it.